0: The Republic of
1: the Marshall Islands Registry is the world's leading quality registry with both the youngest and greenest fleet. Measured by its outstanding port state control record of the three largest registries, only the Marshall Islands ranks in the top ten for the world's major port states and holds Qualship 21 status for an unparalleled 17 consecutive years. The most important asset to the registry is its customers. Full service and technical support are available from any of its 27 worldwide offices, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. A world
0: of service, a legacy of excellence. I'm Nicholas Bornois of Capital Inc., and I would like to welcome you to today's edition of our podcast series, Riding the Waves of a Lifetime. This podcast series gives us the opportunity to interact to communicate and discuss with leading industry personalities, maritime industry personalities, who share with us their life and career experiences as well as their industry insight. And today we are privileged to have with us Lois Zabrocki, the CEO and Director of International Seaways. Before formally welcoming Lois to uh, our podcast, I would like to thank International Registries and the Marshall Islands Registry for sponsoring today's event. The uh, Marshall Islands Registry is a leading quality registry in the world, surpassing 182 million uh, gross tons with about 5,000 ships registered at the end of June uh, of this year. And uh, International Registry has a global network of 27 offices supporting the Marshall Islands Registry. So thank you very much for uh, today's uh, sponsorship of this podcast. And now I would like to welcome Lois with us. Uh, I would not go through her long CV, but I would like to take the opportunity to share a few highlights. And of course, I stand to be corrected by by Lois. So Lois has an amazing career. Uh, She grew up in landlocked uh, Charlotte, Iowa as the youngest of eight children graduated from the US Merchant Marine Academy and also holds a third major license, not mentioning the finance degree from Stern School of Business or I think you attended the Harvard Business School for an executive uh, uh, seminar. Uh, Lois went to sea in 1991 with OMI, being the first and I think only woman on board at the time. She then joined the chartering department of Maritime Overseas Corporation where, again, she was the first female executive. Now, uh, the Maritime Overseas Corporation evolved into the overseas Shipholding group, where lawyers over the years held several sea level uh, executive positions, uh, culminating running OSG's International Flag Strategic Business Unit for over 10 years. And that unit essentially included all of OSG's uh, non-Jones Act uh, tanker business or the deep sea business and the LNG business. When OSG split into the Jones Act and the international flag business in 2016, Lois emerged as a natural uh, leader uh, and as the CEO who uh, led uh, international seaways through a new period of success and transformation and growth. That period culminated with the acquisition of Diamond S shipping which closed a few days ago on July 16. And this combination creates the second largest US listed company by vessel account with over 100 vessels and an enterprise value of about 2 billion. So again, welcome, Lois, and thank you for your time. I know that you are super busy, especially given uh, this new acquisition. So let me start by asking you, uh, you grew up in landlocked Iowa. So it is quite fitting to ask you, how did you develop an interest in shipping and how did you ultimately get into this industry?
1: Yeah, thank you, Nicholas. It's it's a privilege to be here and I'm looking forward to spending a little time this afternoon. So, you know, what, what I would say to that question is that I think for centuries, the call of the sea um, has promised an adventuresome life, you know, particularly for, Young people coming out of what I would say uh, was a hardscrabble upbringing, and you know, in in this country, you know, we're we're blessed with the federal academy system, and my my brother was already at the Merch-Marine Academy, and you know, he would come home with all these stories of all his international travel, and so I I thought, oh wow, you know, what um, what an amazing an amazing opportunity, and. It really has been.
0: Quite interesting. So your brother was the first one who went into- Yes.
1: Uh, yes, and believe it or not, you know he was uh, actually accepted at, at West Point as well as Kings Point, but uh, West Point was going to, um, I say, redshirt him for a year or send him to their preparatory school. And he thought, well, I don't want to waste a year. And off he went on his first plane ride to uh, Kings Point Merchant Academy on Long Island. and then he, um, you know, he sent me the application and said, come on, uh, you know, let's go a couple of years later.
0: Amazing and wonderful. So during your career, you have had several important positions. Um, as I mentioned, besides being on the on the ship, as an executive, you've been in so many different, uh, you've been across all areas of operations, chartering, commercial, management, overseeing fleet operations and, You've dealt with the whole range of product, crude, LNG, chemical tankers, and so on. And of course, as a CEO of International Seaways, you've dealt with everything uh, right. you know, pertaining to the company, So, including dealing with the shareholders and investors. So can I ask you, during this long career, what are the few milestones that you consider important?
1: You know, um, you know, reflecting on on that, I think one of the first milestones, you know, at OSG, at one point uh, I was running for the company uh, an Afromax tanker pool that uh, was had maybe a dozen partners in it, and I turned and I asked our uh, head of financial planning. I said, "Oh, you know, in um, and this was in the go go years." Uh, when the market was just incredible. and I said, well how, you know how much revenue have we booked and it was um, for the last 12 months and it was uh, 800 million dollars. And I thought to myself, oh my goodness, you know um, that's quite that's quite amazing. And you know we had a very small team that was you know executing uh, on our efforts. And when you when you look back and you think about, you know, some of these moments, um, you know, like in my career, and you say, wow, that was a moment where I really uh, made me pause and think about the magnitude of the things that were happening. And then, you know, I would say that, um, you know, when we were integrating Stelmar into the company, so OSG bought Greek company Stelmar in 2005, and it was the first time that, you know, I was running an entire business unit. So the critical differentiator there is that you're handling the P&L. So you're, you're handling more than just the revenue side. And I think that was a milestone for me because you really very quickly come to appreciate the importance of your accounting team. And I had always appreciated really, I think, commercial and operations But you start to say, oh, you know, the legal team and, you know, the insurance expertise, all of this is so critical, you know, in running a successful shipping company. And when you're running, you know, a business unit, you you really get uh, the importance of how all these components fit together into a strong team. And then I I would say, um, you know, real milestone uh, during the restructuring, when the chief restructuring officer uh, came into the company and took over all essential functions and decision-making, which, you know, was really uh, challenging. And, you know, an entire uh, board had to be reconstituted and most of the C-suite turned over and, you know, he was coming to me and I was making, you know, my recommendations and decisions essentially on the international fleet and the market and, you know, what I thought should happen. And and that's a moment where you say, where you realize to yourself, well, you know, I have to fight for our business to, you know, fight for the company, fight for the business that has been around. I mean, um, OSG was formed in 1948 and was, Made public um, as long as I'm alive, right? So to me, it had such a rich legacy and and so much um, really fabulous business components that it deserved to have that opportunity to um, you know restructure and, and and come out and be successful. And so that was a real moment where you know you you know that you have to step up. Um, there's so much and so many people that are you know
0: looking to you uh thank you for all this uh insight now let, let me go to the next question and go from milestones to uh, biggest challenge that you faced and, and here let me make the distinction we'll discuss later on on the challenges as being uh, a female executive so let's focus now on the business uh, challenges uh, during your career you have dealt with market volatility the shipping markets and you've also dealt with the company volatility because uh you know, you have, uh, you have been with uh, uh, Maritime Overseas Corporation, then OSG, OSG um, went through a bankruptcy, then uh, it resurfaced, then it split, uh, then you acquired um, Diamond S. So quite a lot of uh, yes. amazing uh, happening. So tell us what you consider within that sphere as major challenges and how did you overcome them?
1: Yeah, well, you know, I would say, Nicholas, that, you know, in the tanker market, you know, the cyclicality of the industry uh, is absolute. And every time you're going through a particular cycle, uh, you will hear, oh, this time it's different. You know, uh, during the incredible market where China was, um, you know, raising their standard of living and had joined um, the World Trade Organization, and you know, really, um, I look at you know 2000 to 2008 as having been the strongest shipping cycle that I believe we'll ever see, only interrupted by um, 9/11. So, you know, all of that was amazing, and. When they, the uh, bubble burst and the Great Recession was experienced, you know, shipping actually hung on for about six months after you know, the financial markets imploded. However, you know, the market went into a very, very difficult place really until 2014, when it fundamentally uh, st- started to recover dramatically. And so, you know, you could, being at the company at that time and having lots of time charters, so we had fixed coverage, you know, you could, you know, and we had all our contracts were honored. However, it was very challenging because, you know, you could see that it was going to be a long downturn and, and yet. It was, you know, you cannot control the markets. You can only take your actions within the markets to make sure that the company um, will come out the other side. So, you know, that was an extremely challenging and and humbling period, you know, when we went into reorganization. And I always say that when we reorganized and we came out in 2014, you know, uh, OSG reinstated all of our debt and there was fresh equity raised but we repaid you know we did not um take a haircut or a discount on any of our debt and we had three dollars left for the shareholders the original shareholders which really means that the company wasn't actually insolvent it was a company that had you know um come into a situation where the refinancing was challenging, had a challenging tax problem, and it was such a successful and storied company. And going through that period, um, you know, really from 2011, 12, 13, that was um, the, the most, you know, the most challenging time. And to go and to fight to keep our ships, you know, that was, you um, you know, we had vessels uh, that were built in China. We thought that those vessels would all be returned to their, you know, to the banks. And, you know, we were able to really hold the international business together, which was not a foregone conclusion, but it was, there were, there were dark days. Those were really um, challenging times, you know, for, you know, all of us.
0: Indeed, but uh, you weathered them and you came uh, signing through. So... Uh... Both yourself and the company. Thank you. Yeah. So now, if I can go to the other leg of, uh, of, the, uh, of the question, uh, focusing on you being uh, a female seafarer. Uh, uh, bef- tell us, how did it feel when you were with OMI as the first, the, the only woman on board? And how is the experience of a seafarer? I mean, that's a different from being a female yeah. executive. Let's focus on the seafarer. I don't know how yes. many women are seafarers today.
1: No, absolutely. You know, uh, you know, heading out to sea, you know, with what I say is when you graduate, you know, from the academy, even with uh, over 300 days of sea experience as a cadet, you really have a license to learn. So when you show up to the tank or, you know, you're the you're the greenest person, you're, you're the absolute most junior person. And, you know, I found the the level of the the seafarers uh, on board the OMI chemical tanker that I went on to be very high. Um, it was it was quite a uh, young, you know, young officers and people really with a lot of hustle. So, you know, the whole name of the game was to ramp yourself as quickly as possible and understand, you know, what the um, stowage should be for the chemicals on board and, you know uh, the tank cleaning and you know when you're on a chemical tanker it's intense trading so you might go to seven or eight berths within one port which means it's all hands on deck so the ability for you to gain a tremendous amount of experience navigating um handling lines you know directing the bow or the stern you know it is really excellent so you know, I found it to be a, a really great environment. Olmai was a well-run company. They had what at that time were, were quite modern ships. So um, shipping out with them was, you know, it was exciting and I really enjoyed it.
0: So well, you really got your experience, so to speak, being in the trenches, being at the front line, which obviously is uh, wonderful and very enriching. Uh, yes. And then let's make the migration from being a seafarer to being a female executive you are the shining example of a highly successful and widely respected female CEO in a male-dominated industry. So can you share with us your personal journey and also given your experience, what would you see as the opportunities and challenges for women in shipping?
1: Yeah, so it's a big question. I got to unpack it a little bit. You know, um, you know, coming from off the tankers, you know, and then coming into uh, MOC's offices and being on the chartering desk, you know, the chartering job is a coveted job, you know, with, within um, the companies. And you know, there was, you know, there were always things where you know one of the guys on on the desk used to say, "Well, you never did operations," and he was had a degree from St. John's. And I said, "Dude, you know, if after you uh, go to sea and execute some uh, cargo transfers," I'll do a demerge claim for you, you know? So, I mean, I found that, um, you know, you you sort of had to stick up for yourself, but I think that's the the case, you know, really for, you know, everyone in a competitive industry uh, like shipping. And I found that, uh, you know, if you were willing to work hard and learn your craft, you know, everybody was, you know, pretty welcoming. So. You know, I think today, um, you know, there is a opportunity, certainly for, you know, um, American um, on the Jones Act vessels. Now, that's how I went to sea. that's very different. I think, you know, as we run all international ships, we do have, you know, 20 women that are, you know, everything from engineers um, to assistant cooks, chief cooks, and all different roles. However, that's out of well over, you know, before the merger, that was out of 1,000 compliments. That's a very small number, so I think that you know certainly in the you know in the Jones Act trade the American um, flag vessels, you know there there is you know a real forward thinking attitude and you know people are are mostly just you know concerned about competence and everyone learning, and I think you know when you go on the international side you know we make an effort to develop and recruit and have diversity. And i think it just can be um you know more challenging because you know you're doing deep sea voyages you're not just trading um you know with cabotage trade within the united states you know these are long voyages for our international seafarers and it can be challenging to develop women and get them to be interested to stay at sea for uh
0: you know a longer period very interesting so you are highly visible in the industry, and uh, as you and I were discussing just before starting, we have the opportunity to share into your industry insight when you are on various panels, but I really appreciate the fact that uh, we have the opportunity now to share a little bit more on the, on the personal side, so thank you for all this um, uh, wonderful insight. Now let me migrate to the uh, industry side of our discussion. The uh, the pandemic has accelerated uh, change in the industry and, I guess, in society in, in our I mean in our daily yes. life. So, how do you see the post-COVID uh, shipping era compared to before? What do you see the, the, the major changes taking place?
1: So, you know, Nicholas, I think that this is still evolving. You know, uh, as we speak, we are not post-COVID. You know, I, I wish that we were. You know. Uh, Every day, the Bloomberg uh, tracker has how many uh, vaccinations have been done, you know, daily. We, we were at almost 40 million for the world. Now we're like 32 million for, you know, daily. And, you know, you're watching, you know, we're maybe a quarter of the the world's population um, has had at least one shot. So, you know, we're in a situation today where, you know, the world is still struggling with COVID and, you know, as we know, there are variants and, and you know, we continue where a lot of the emerging world, emerging markets, you know, Indonesia, you know, Thailand, um, a lot of countries are struggling with uh, overcoming, and they don't have enough vaccines yet. And so, I think we were gonna we're gonna continue to change. You know, so being in the oil tanker industry, you know, our markets were originally very very high because not because the demand was so high but because they needed a place to put the oil while they were ramping down production and you know that was you know the first half of 2020 and then since that time you know uh the world has been drawing down those inventories at sea drawing down the inventories at at ashore so underneath the surface businesses across the uh oil complex have been very pressurized and we're seeing you know ref- various refineries being pressured to close and then some of those facilities will reopen with biodiesel and you know we've seen Australia they only you know have one or two smaller refineries left so they're importing their products so for all of those of us in the oil business and the tanker markets you know we need to continue to really watch how the um landscape will look after this this storm of covet is over so in some cases you know you'll have longer distances that product needs to to travel because you know australia will be importing their barrels um, you know in in other cases you'll see you know fewer refineries or more refineries coming online in some of these um emerging markets so for us you know we're we're really, uh, Hustling to keep abreast of okay, how quickly is demand going to come back that will drive our tanker market? And you know, h- how quickly are the regulatory changes going to come at us? And how do we need to pivot to be able to be a successful business going forward?
0: You're absolutely right that we are not yet out of the COVID era, and uh, I, I appreciate the landscape that you painted. I know it's impossible to have a crystal ball and and talk about uh, the market recovery, but right now the tanker market is clearly a sector that is lagging compared to containers, dry bulk, and so on. And uh, when we read, uh, I mean, the recovery is very uneven, as you pointed out throughout the world, very uncertain. But I think there is still optimism that we are slowly recovering the uh, international agency uh, came out uh, the uh, International Energy yes. uh, came out with uh, a report uh, pointing out the increased uh, oil output in in the second quarter. They're forecasting more for uh, the third quarter. They're mentioning all these wonderful things about um, you know vaccines and so on. So eventually there is an, a sense of optimism yes. uh, that will hopefully drive the market recovery also for uh, for tankers, product and crude. Any any more insight on that?
1: No, absolutely. I mean, you know, if you just sort of, you know, take a snapshot of, of the United States where everyone has had the ability to be fully vaccinated, and you know, our uh, product consumption has gone back to where we were before the pandemic, in you know, in two thousand and nineteen. So, you know, the gasoline consumption. Touched 10 million barrels a day here recently, right? So you see the you know, refinery utilization has gone up. You know, uh, road traffic has gone up. So you know, you see um, a very impressive rebound and recovery in the countries where the vaccinations have, um, you know, permeate you know permeated the population at a higher level, higher than 50%. So you see what you know. I think the world. Uh, you know, we're social creatures, we're, we're, I don't think we're meant to be holed up in our, our homes, um, you know, at infinitum. And so the world is eager to go back and start living again. Um, You know, the product consumption, you know, you went from over 100 million barrels a day down to below 90. And now we're, you know, somewhere around 95 million barrels a day. So it's climbing back And then we see over the weekend, um, the UAE and OPEC plus kind of behind the scenes discussing um, and saying informally in any case, you know, okay, they're going to add back 400,000 barrels per day each month until the end of the year, which would mean they will be bringing online another 2 million barrels a day between now and the end of the year. And it looks like we should see at least that amount, probably more of an increase in demand at the same time, and then all of that is, um, you know, somewhat affected by, as as we talked about, you know, uh, the the extent of lockdowns that countries, you know, go into. So we, you know, on the tanker side, you know, we're looking for that, you know, it's already happening. You're just not seeing it in the rates because, you know, first you have to um, mop up all the excess that was in the system before you're going to see the market recover. But the the un, you know below the surface that's already
0: happening. You know that, that's a difficult question, uh, maybe a tricky one, and I don't mean it to be that way. No, no. What I find very interesting is there is a concerted global effort away from fossil fuels. Yes. But still, we're discussing about increased demand of fossil fuels that are ultimately carried by by the tanker industry. So that is very right. interesting. And of course, the trend is still there because it will take a long time before we really make, I think, an appreciable dent in, in uh, consumption patterns. Anyway, uh, focusing now on decarbonization. Uh, you pointed out about regulation. The EU came out recently with their uh, proposed uh, a plan uh, which also includes sweeping. The industry reaction has been diverse or I would yes. say negative. I would think more, more negative than diverse. Uh, or divided. And uh, it seems that the the risk of regional measures as opposed to international measures is there. So do we have right now the lines drawn in the sand? Uh, Do we know what may happen next? Uh, I mean, any particular insight of how the industry might navigate? Because I understand that what has been proposed by the EU is kind of an opening bid. I don't think it's a final plan.
1: No, you know absolutely, Nicholas. And I, you know, I, I, you know, one of the things I, you know, sort of harp on is, you know, what we would love in shipping is for everything to be, you know, like, you know, when we, you know, have to lower our sulfur to, you know, 0.5, right? You know, if you have an even playing field where the regulations affect everyone, you know, this is ideal for a ship owner because. You, you have a clearer road to, you know, what do you need to do to make sure that you are able to be compliant or, you know, exceed compliance. And that's something that, you know, you can plan for your capital spend. So today, you know, we, we have a, uh, a wide open, you know, field and there are, you know, some rules from IMO, and then the EU is making their decisions, and President Biden is, you know, trying to weigh in, and so you see that that the, uh, you know, many different organizations are trying to make progress, but it is definitely um, uneven. So for a ship owner, you know, we have to make sure that we're uh, following everything and paying attention to, you know, where. The regulations are coming from, and how we can be affected, and to make sure that we're not behind the curve. And, you know, it it definitely is um, a time of very rapid change. And that whole uh, not just monitoring regulations, it's further than that, it's, you know, understanding where the technology is and how developed things are, and what is uh, a solution that's practicable today, and what is something that is still on the horizon. And, and then you know, uh, pivoting to be able to respond to that.
0: Staying on that topic, uh, you know, what is here today and you know, keeping the, the eye on the horizon, uh, International seaways has ordered three dual fuel LNG VLCCs. So there is a debate out there as to whether mm-hmm. the LNG is uh, the ultimate fuel of the, of the future or, or an intermediate solution. What
1: are your thoughts on that? Okay. So, you know, w- what we know, um, you know, without a doubt is, is that, uh, you know, the, when these vessels are operating with LNG, which is the intention of Shell, with whom we have a seven-year charter, you know, is for, for them to operate with LNG, and you're going to be, you know, 20 to 40% more efficient than you know, the vessels, VLCCs the that are on the water today, you know, you will have reduced, you know, your greenhouse emissions, your CO2. You are not at zero. However, you, you, you know, these, this is the most technologically advanced engines that are available today that an owner can, um, you know, employ. So, you know, we look at it as, you know, those vessels will be delivering at the very end of 2022, early 2023, and they will already be a step change. It's, it is not the final solution. Um, however, there's well over 800 VLCCs in, in the world. And, you know, if these vessels come online and lower emissions, that makes, you know, that makes more room for some of those much older ships to go ahead and retire. That are going to be more on that 40% less efficient part of the spectrum. So we, you know, I don't believe that LNG will be the 2035 solution, but I definitely think it will be a a very effective solution for a number of years. And you know, you know, I don't believe that those vessels, I believe they will have a full lifetime, even if they are not the cutting-edge technology of 2035.
0: You know, you made a very interesting comment that uh, at the end of the day, this is a step in the right direction. Yes, definitely. and also, as I understand, it is the best option today.
1: That is correct. Yes,
0: that so, that is
1: yeah.
0: So, if you have uh, the best option today and the step in the right direction, clearly by by uh, you know adopting that, right, it's a plus. But l- let me now last question on decarbonization. The uncertainty comes from the form of fuels, from the form of propulsion. Uh, We don't know know, how these two will evolve uh, in the future, even though, as we said, we have uh, some solutions right now available. How does this uncertainty affect uh, fleet renewal and new building orders? I mean, the tanker business, you need to have very modern, sophisticated, state-of-the-art vessels for safety, security, and efficiency. So how does this uncertainty affect uh, new buildings fleet renewal and also uh, scrapping especially given that now I think uh, the steel price has gone north of 600 uh, per ton yes yes
1: the uh, re, you know recycling prices of so the rebar yeah. you know is is at or north of, of $600 a ton and we we've seen the um, impact of uh, commodity, you know, heightened commodity demand on steel prices. You know, so we've seen that peak, and yet we still haven't seen very many VLCCs uh, be recycled. So, you know, um, this this is a time when that should be happening in the market. Uh, there's, you know, I think various reasons why why that isn't happening at the moment. But you know, when you look across the space, you know, coal would be your your most emitting you know, commodity. And, you know, countries that have a huge amount of natural resources of coal coal are not reduced. There's still new coal plants being built in the world, right? So I think the whole world is turning and turning quickly. And and yet in order to meet the energy needs, you know, of the world, there's still uh, a demand for, you know, uh, various energy sources across the spectrum.
0: So Lois, we also mentioned before about technology as being one of the transforming factors. Uh, If you can share with us what you have seen as the most um, compelling or um, transforming change so far, and what do you see looking ahead in terms of technology and its impact and adoption in in, in shipping?
1: Well, you know, I think the, uh, you know, the, the battery technology is, you know, not yet adapted for able to, you know, for us to do deep sea shipping. But, you know, when you look at the amount of automation and, you know, battery technology for short sea moves, you know, I think that's been very innovative. You're seeing a lot being done on um, methanol, you know, as as a uh, fuel, uh, you know, you hear a lot of talk about ammonia, you know, so it's, I don't, I think it's going to be a multifaceted solution. And, so in some ways, it takes, um, I'm going to speak specifically about the market I know, which is the tanker market, away a bit from being so heavily commoditized. You know, for us with our Shell project, you know, it would have, I think that it was very important for Shell to move swiftly. You know, they had secured berths at, you know, a top, you know, at Daewoo, top Korean yard, and they needed to, uh, they want it to strategically build 10 vessels. And so they worked with partners where they had an established relationship, um, terms and conditions, and had been able to find success over the years. And so it takes uh, tankers away from being completely commoditized and back into a situation um, where you, you are better off working with partners so that you can make sure you're combining some of their, you know, the technog- technological, um, vision of Shell and the fact that they have a lot of LNG resources with a company um, like ourselves that knows how to build chips, and, and you bring that together. And so one of the the thing that's one of the things that we're starting to see, it's not going to be one um, one uh, size for everyone, one size fits all. I don't I don't believe that that's um, the solutions that will come to play.
0: Absolutely. So let me now move uh, forward to the next topic, uh, finance. Uh, Shipping is a capital intensive industry uh, and the financing landscape for shipping has changed quite a lot uh, over the years. Now you and Jeff Freeboard, you run a very tight ship uh, on the finance end with the eye on capital allocation, return on investment, and uh, you have uh, implemented a number of very innovative uh, financing solutions over time. So when you look at the landscape of for uh, sourcing capital, I have two questions for you. How do you see this landscape changing? And the second question is, what does it mean for the smaller or medium owner who does not have the footprint you have? Would that inevitably lead to consolidation?
1: Well, you know, Nick, I, I do think that you know uh, there there will be a benefit. I mean, we you know we did this merger uh, not just because bigger is better. You know, what, what I would say is that, you know, if you're an owner that has a, a billion dollar market cap and are approaching that, you know, you you can get the intention of larger investors, um, you know, a deeper pool of financiers, you know, but I, I again, I would kind of reiterate that idea that, you know, I think uh, the lending market has and will continue to become more discerning. And so, You know, it it becomes a little bit less commoditized as well, and it becomes more diversified. So, you know, for international seaways, you know, our long term relationship banks are number one in importance, and you also have you know a role for you know Chinese leasers, you know, who you know are really filling in a large gap for financing in our industry, you know, and you just sort of keep going into. various sources, you know, at International Seaways, we have a $25 million um, baby bond that is in place. And, you know, when you look at it, you know, I think owners will continue to need to be creative and keep an open mind for, uh, you know, for capital coming in from multiple sources. And I think if you are small, there can be a place for you. But again, I think those relationships, um, you know, need to be cultivated so that, you know, uh, banks are going to lend to those that they're familiar with, that they see uh, being willing to move forward with the pace of change.
0: Absolutely. But you opened uh, the door to my next question about uh, Diamond S. Uh, Diamond S uh, clearly has, it's a major transaction, it's transformative. And uh, if you can take us a little bit uh, through the rationale of it and also through, the challenges and opportunities that this creates, and how would this affect uh, management and company operations? You're combining two very large companies, so.
1: No, absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, the um, you know merger with Diamond S, and ha- having concluded that on Friday, is transformation transformational for us clearly at International Seaways as well as at Diamond S. So, you know, we'll have a hundred strong vessel um, fleet. And when you look at it, you know, the two fleets dovetail together quite nicely. It really solidifies us, you know, in our big sectors, you know, so we have 13 VLCCs and 14 uh, Suez Maxes. And then on the the barbells, I say, you know, the other end, you know, now, you know, the company has 50 MRs. So, you know, you suddenly have strength in um, the products and in the big crude and, you know, it is still focused and streamlined, and yet, you know, you have enough scale so that you can have a significant presence in um, both of these ends of the spectrum. And that's something that we think in dovetails quite nicely and is a st- great strategic fit. You know, I think the the challenges are, um, you know, you know, as our team, you know, MRs are, you uh, People intensive to manage. And, you know, we want to make sure we take advantage of the best practices that have been in place at Diamond S and all their deep experience. And so you just want to make sure that, you know, you don't lose the expertise of um, when you bring the teams together and that, you know, you, we look to, um, you know, achieve together.
0: Of course. So, Moving to the next question. I've read in your interviews that how much uh, you value uh, concepts like hard work, competence, and loyalty. And all of these are important elements of uh, a solid company culture. So how much does company culture matter in running a successful company like yours? And how do you as the CEO make sure that this permeates throughout the whole organization? Now I will close the question by saying that clearly all of these and company culture is part of the commitment to ESG, and I know that uh, International Seaways has a big commitment uh, to that. Uh, you're very active uh, on yes. this. Product.
1: no, absolutely, um, Nicholas. And it's you know, it's uh, company culture. It's uh, kind of soft. You know, how, how does one really you know describe that? But there's there are certain things. You know, um, we say tone from the top you know, international seaways and Diamond S, you know, we have always um, reiterated to our crews, you know, for example, if we pull up into a port and the local agents come on board and say, oh, you know, um, oh, we see some discrepancies here. And, you know, uh, however, if we have a payment of $500, you know, those will go away. We do not we do not pay that. We make the phone call to the charterer and we anchor that ship out. And in all likelihood, you know that will then turn into lost time for the company and you know a, a fine that will then be um, there will be some sort of paperwork produced and you know so it, it's challenging. However, once you've made that decision and you've followed up with that and you've supported the seafarers and they understand that you really mean it you know, the business starts to change. And it's clear, you know, nobody has to wonder, oh, do they really want me to do the uh, quick thing, but not the right thing? And we definitely want the right thing to happen. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and when you're talking about culture, you know, one of our uh, our general counsel said the other day, oh, you know, at International Seaways, we have a challenge culture. and I said, yes, sort of rolled my eyes, but what does that mean? You know, when, when we're, you know, getting together, you know, there's this level of um, healthy debate around, "Mm, I don't, I don't agree with you. Hey, I think this, and, you know, I think it's very important to that people feel that they're able to do that and that that is not squelched in, in an environment. And that at the end of the day, you know, that will make the company stronger and better because not, you know, there's no one person who has to answer to, you know, every, every conundrum, you know, and for ESG, I mean, that's very important, you know, it's the environment, it's, you know, social and, you know, shipping We're, you know, laggards, I would say, you know, in, in the social elements. And these are things that we, you know, during COVID, you know, uh, never before did we have to deviate vessels for two, three days to affect a crew change. And even when the market was very strong, we did that. And you know, you thought, oh well, you know, you could just keep sailing because you know, COVID's going to be over very shortly, and everyone's going to get to go home. But that did not happen. So you know, these this type of commitment to the mental um, mental health of you know your seafarers who are you know out there on your most expensive assets, you know, and then you go into governance, and I think that's an area where. OSG was probably ahead of their time and kind of emphasized that always. So that's, you know, that scantling for us has has been in place for a long time.
0: Very interesting. So we're coming closer to the end of our podcast. I have just a few more questions for you, but let me ask as the CEO of a global shipping company, maybe not now, but uh, under normal times, uh, you have always been on the move 24 seven. Uh, yes all over the place so how do you balance work and personal family (laughs) life
1: yeah very funny uh nicholas um you know so i happened to marry a a, a retired ship captain and you know somewhere probably 15 years ago you know we had you know my children are uh 24 and 21 and we had a conversation and you know he's uh more mature than me. And I said, listen, you know, he's been home, he's been home and uh, raised the kids. And that has left me able to, you know, be face forward into international shipping. And I I think that over the years at different times, you know, depending upon where you are in your career, you know, it may be more work and less family. And then at other times it's more family and less work. And I think especially um, post pandemic, you know, we're gonna see a lot of, you know, changes on this front. And, you know, when we had our staff, you know, uh, closing the books from home all during, you know, the last year and a half, you know, I am quite confident that, you know, some of our, you know, parents of young children were, you know, with their kids for a couple hours in the day, and then working till two in the morning, uh, you know, and they were able to do that effectively. And I think, it demonstrates a little bit of, uh, of a new paradigm where you know, the, the work is getting done and people are also being able to prioritize uh, their families as well.
0: So I always have a question uh, on what's next on your agenda, but I have the feeling that knowing where you are now, just having closed the dime on this, <laughs> I have the feeling I know what's next on your agenda. <laughs>
1: Well, you know, well, I mean, yes, but maybe it's obvious, but we'll say, you know, so clearly, you know, we want to make sure we amalgamate the two companies together, right? And, you know, really get a a handle on, um, you know, driving this bigger fleet. And then, you know, there's no time to take your eyes off of the horizon with the amount of change that's coming at us. So that will will be um, a continued focus for international seaways. Of
0: course, I should have also mentioned uh, earlier on that you are the third, the third female executive to receive the Commodore uh, nomination, not nomination uh, presentation from the Mm -hmm. Maritime Association. So now coming to the last question. After building uh, a successful career and reflecting back, is there any advice you would give to a younger self or is there something you would have done differently?
1: You know, I, I'm sure there's I'm sure Nicholas, you know, there's there's you know, so many things. And I, I think, you know, one thing is uh, you know, I think it will be very unusual for someone to, you know, have the, the at least this much of my career largely with one company. And I would say that, you know, I was trying to work at one company, but it's probably changed about 10 times in, you know, over the years. And so I just, I think that, you know, young people today coming into the business or whatever they're doing, they're going to have multiple careers and that, um, you know, that's okay. You know, it's, it's, you know, really something that's probably exciting for young people that they're going to be able to reinvent themselves so many times. And, you know, we have to be, we have to be open to that, you know, as you know, wherever we are in our career. So I I guess I I kind of look at it and say, I, I think that's, that's changed so greatly in, in oh, you know, the 30 years I've been working.
0: Lois, we have come to the end of our discussion. I wanted to thank you very much for sharing all this insight with us. Uh, any closing remarks?
1: You know, I, I would just say that you know, um, International Tankers, I think is you know, one of the most fascinating businesses in the world. We're, we're affected by everything going on, all the macroeconomics, you know, the pandemic. And, you know, it's, it's such an interesting place to be. So, you know, it's, it's something that I love. And I, I think uh, International Seaways, we will be um, going into that future with bright
0: prospects. Absolutely. So, Lois, I would like again to thank you very much uh, for, for being with us. We had the great privilege to have Lois Abroti, the CEO of International Seaways. I would like to thank her. And of course, I would like to thank again Uh, the uh, International Registry and the Marshall Islands Registry for sponsoring today's podcast. And again, thank you very much uh, for uh, this tremendous uh, insight.
1: Thank you so much, Nicholas. We're really grateful for the opportunity.
0: Thank you.